Two weeks ago, we lost a faithful member of our church family. Brad Jamison's death in a car accident has driven us with broken hearts to God, seeking comfort and seeking counsel. Last week, we sought counsel in the Word and found solace there in God's wisdom. I would like to go through each of the texts of Scripture that we were able to pour over last week, but I think for sake of time, we'll not do that. But just to summarize the various points that we found in God's Word as we work our way through this trial. God has, as we learned last week from the book of Job, the sovereign right to deprive us of any joy while owing us no explanation. That doesn't get us very far, but it opens the door to hear his word, to understand what he does say to us. We learn, secondly, that God is always in complete control and always working through every circumstance to accomplish his perfect purposes. We can rest in this. We can know this. His word declares it over and again. We can place our confidence in it. And God is always on the throne of the universe. We learn thirdly that God uses suffering to strengthen our faith. He's up to this. He has gone on record to say that this is what he is about in our life as an assembly in the life of the Jameson family. But in all the trials that we face, God is always strengthening our faith, the faith of those who know him as Savior. Fourthly, we learn that God supplies supernatural comfort to his children when they suffer. How foolish it would be for us to stand up against such trials and think that we can do it in our own strength in the flesh. But this is my hope and my confidence for this church and for the Jamesons, that God has gone on record to say that he will supply unique strength and grace. We trust in his word. We learned also that God instructs and inspires us with the example of faithful believers who have entered eternity before us. And there's great encouragement in this as we look back to a life lived in faith that God has rescued and that has followed through in the grace of God. Though our hearts are in grief, these are points on which we stake our faith and our trust. This is God's word to us that strengthens us in such a time. And let me say again that there is much we will never understand about this tragedy until we reach glory. But God has given us solid counsel in which we can trust and upon which we can stake our hope until the day that we meet the Lord. But branching off from there, Brad's death is troubling not only because of what he meant to us as a church family, but also because his death comes only 21 months after the accident that took Jim and Grace Burgum from us with all of the entailments of Katie and Jacob's injuries and Geraldine's trial in this event. 21 months. Now others, very dear to us, have died of disease and old age through these years, some unexpectedly, but it is, I think, the proximity of these two sudden traffic accidents that have led people to assume that Eden Baptist Church is under a curse. Several such reports have reached us now, and these are just things that people say. Who knows what they're thinking? One woman guaranteeing she'd never darken the doors of this church, presumably for fear the curse would fall on her. 
We sought the wisdom of God on this matter last week and were encouraged by the history of Job, whose friends drew the same conclusion about him. I mean, it's not a fun thing to go to the book of Job because it applies directly to you at the time, it would seem. But it is filled with hope. I thank God that book is in the canon. And in light of the revelation left to us in the book of Job, the evidence indicates Eden Baptist is not under a curse, but in good company. In the company of those God chooses to endure pain to His glory and to the maturation of their faith. This may not be a path that we would choose, but God assures us it's a good path. He's in it. But can we be sure? I ask this question again. Can we be absolutely confident that we are not cursed? We briefly touched on that matter last week, but I'd like to return to it in order to further solidify our interpretation of the trials God has visited upon us as an assembly. This is part of the walk of faith. You've got to ask yourselves questions through all of life, as things come upon us to know what God is saying and how He desires for us to look at it, how do we interpret our circumstances? That is so much the key to the Christian walk. It's not what happens to us. God doesn't treat us somehow uniquely where we get off scot-free from all the trials that this world faces. We face everything an unbeliever faces outside of the direct results of active sin. But we face all the same trials. The issue is how do we interpret them? And what is God's counsel to us? By way of definition, I think we first need to understand in this discussion that a curse subjects a person to the destructive powers of a supernatural force. Sometimes by simply defining something, the answer begins to emerge. And I think that's somewhat the case here. Now for secularists, I'm going to treat them a little bit differently than is really honest, but what it really kind of boils down to for the secularist is that chance or luck stands in for the supernatural force. There are many people who would claim even to be Christians who are really secularists. That is, now, not in a formal sense that they do not believe there is any supernatural realm, but very few people are really genuine secularists through and through. I speak here more of the popular secularist who just doesn't want to ever deal with the thought of God doesn't want to deal with the supernatural realm. To these, they repair to the idea of chance or luck. Somehow chance can be against us or luck can be against us. Pagans are a little bit easier to unpack. They understand the supernatural force to be the gods. And the gods may curse us. Others would think of demons who are cursing us or of God himself who is the source of such malady. So differing worldviews are going to interpret the supernatural forces differently, but a curse subjects a person to the malicious powers of a supernatural force or forces. Anything else is just an enemy working against you. But if we're dealing with curse, we're dealing with supernatural power. Particularly in ancient cultures, a curse was believed to possess innate power to effect what it envisioned. It was, as one has called it, self-realizing. 
And where do you see this perhaps best in the, in the Bible? Now we see this in the account of Numbers 22 through 24 of the Moabite king Balak as he's trying to get the prophet Balaam to curse Israel for him. It's not just an expression of a wish. Balak could express his wishes about Israel. There's something more to it than that. He believes that through the curse, something will be effected against Israel. Some malady will be brought down upon them. And over and again, he's trying to convince Balaam to curse the Israelites, evidencing that a spoken curse was seen as more than the expression of a wish, but actually wielded power. And to this day, people resort to magic and the casting of spells, to imprecatory prayers and the like, to enlist the malevolent powers of demons or gods against their enemies. So let's not think nebulously about the idea, but to realize we're dealing with supernatural powers brought down destructively against the individual who is under the curse. And moving from that definition, I'd like us to note secondly that the only supernatural force that can affect a curse is God. Now that's a deductive statement, but I'd like to defend and unpack just briefly here, and we could take a lot of time to do it. But God alone is God, and He rules the universe with absolute sovereign power. Secondly, God alone has the power and authority to curse His creatures. Let's think on that first sub-point. God alone is God and rules the universe with absolute sovereign power. There are no other gods. The prophet Isaiah particularly goes to great lengths to argue that the gods are the creation of human minds and hands, of the figment of the imagination. God declares in Isaiah 44 and verse 6, Beside me there is no God. Against the idols, craftsmen cut out of wood and cover with metal. Against the idols that must be carried around and nailed into place on a shelf. Against the idols that can do their worshipers no good because they do not exist, Isaiah goes to great lengths to say. God is the creator of the universe and the savior of his people. It is in direct contrast to the idols that cannot see or hear or save or direct the future that God says to his people, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand, Isaiah 41. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. They that wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the God who runs the universe, who comes to us in our trial and says, I am with you because I'm the living God. You don't set me on a shelf. I've created all things, and I will come to your aid. So I think we can very clearly conclude from this section of Isaiah, but also from all of Scripture, that nothing in this world is subject to chance nor is God in a dualistic conflict with the forces of evil. Ephesians 1.11, hear it again, speaks of God as the one who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of His will. Lamentation 3, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? 
Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Isaiah 45, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me there is no God. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. There's a lot of questions there. Many that we'll never answer fully. But God has gone on record to say that He alone is God and rules the universe with sovereign power. There are no other gods. God alone, secondly, has the power and authority to curse His creatures. Let's remember back in Genesis chapter 3, if you'd like to turn there, Genesis 3, Satan tempts Adam and Eve to sin. Satan does not come to earth to curse Adam and Eve. The first curse of the Bible is issued by God in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14. The Lord God says after the fall to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you. In chapter 3 and verse 17, he speaks to Adam and says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Notice this connection. We'll get back to it later. But I commanded you to do something and you did not do it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In chapter 4 and verse 11, after Cain has killed his brother Abel, we read, and now you are cursed from the ground. It is God who wields the curses of Scripture and the curses of these, this first book of Genesis, making our way between here. But Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, Genesis 12 and verse 3 where God chooses Abram and says, I want you to leave Mesopotamia to go to a land that I have chosen for you. Notice what he says in 12.3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is doing something. He is choosing Abraham and setting, continuing to set in course this line of people that will come to Messiah and will crush Satan's head. And in this process, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. So anyone who opposes you opposes the plan of God and will come under a curse. Now people can certainly speak a curse, right? They do often in the Bible. But God is under no obligation to effect such curses, nor are we instructed to issue them. I mean, if you don't get anything figured out about the God of Scripture... He's really not paying a whole lot of attention to what you're telling him he's going to do, is he? He knows what he will do, and he loves to work with his people graciously to bring about what he desires and the purposes that he desires. But he's not going to listen to some curse that someone issues and jump to it because they've cursed someone. Indeed, the curses on the part of believers, there are imprecatory prayers, that's another issue. But really what Jesus taught us was love your enemies and do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you. Luke 6, verses 27 and 28. What I hear from Jesus' words there is it's really not my business to be running around figuring out who's supposed to be cursed by God. But I'm actually to bless those who curse me. I think there is a place for imprecatory prayers, and we have to be cautious with that. But clearly, he says that we are to respond to curses with blessings. 
Paul said to the Romans, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So people can certainly speak curses. But it is God who sovereignly rules heaven and earth. And here's where I think we need to hone in and grasp this point. In the biblical sense of the term, a curse is God's judgment, temporal or eternal, against those who violate His word. It is God's judgment against those who violate His word. As we study out this concept, we find it is so commonly linked to the word of God and to the disobedience of people. That's what we see in Genesis 3. I asked you to note that. Remember, we go back to that idea. In Genesis chapter 3, it is because you have violated my word to you that this curse comes. Well, notice in Deuteronomy 27 and verse 26, where we find a summation of the law. As you look toward the end of that chapter, you'll notice the curses that are issued here against those who disobey God's law. And in Deuteronomy 27 and verse 26, we find a important summation which says cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them you see the connection then again between the curse of God and disobedience to his word in Deuteronomy 30 verses 19 and 20 God lays out the situation again for Israel and says here is the deal Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, there it is, and holding fast to Him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. I set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Will you hear the word of the Lord and live? It is the curse of God issued against those who violate the law of God that should concern us. I know as I hear these words, that wells up within my heart. I don't obey the Word of God. There are times when I violate what He says I should do. Does that subject me then to the curse of God? Indeed, it should. That would be just and right for God. But here, the Gospel comes in and gives such great comfort that Jesus suffered God's curse against sinners. God alone can curse, and Jesus suffered God's curse against sinners. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3, which we just referenced last week. But I'd like to sit down in this text for a while and to allow God to encourage us and sanctify us through it as we think on what Christ has done. Galatians chapter 3, in 2.21 Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, Jesus' death is pointless if it is possible for us to gain righteous standing before God by keeping the Mosaic law. No need for Jesus to die. 
But Paul goes on to defend this point to say that that makes his death worthless if it is by keeping the law that we gain a righteous standing before God. Chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now that's not meant to be taken literally, that someone had placed a magic spell on them. I suppose in the vernacular of our day, we would say something like, what are you smoking? And we don't mean the person is actually smoking something, but it's a way of saying, how how can you be so foolish? How can you be so ridiculous? It was, second part of verse 1, before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. The gospel has been preached to the Galatians as the source of God's saving grace. When the Galatians heard that message and responded to the gospel in faith, they received the indwelling Holy Spirit and were regenerated. Now, says Paul, think back on that saving response to the gospel. What are you thinking? Let me ask you only this, verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? They knew. They responded to the gospel. And they were clearly saved by the response of faith. Well, if that's the case, and clearly it is, verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You were saved by faith in the gospel. The Spirit did not come to indwell you when you proved you could keep the law. How can something that began in the Spirit continue forward in the flesh? Verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Depending on, you see the textual variant there. Did you experience salvation in the Spirit in vain? In other words, did Christ die for you and you responded in the Spirit and now you're going to go live righteously before God by keeping the law? Or, as the ESV has it here, did you suffer so many things in vain, perhaps referring to their persecution? Is this all in vain? You're going to go back to keeping the law and forget all that Christ has done for you? Verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You were saved by faith, not by keeping the law. And God continues to work among you as you respond in faith to his word. So, in fact, the law itself, in the Pentateuch, we have verse 6, Abraham believing God and it's counted to him as righteousness, Genesis 15, 6. As Paul fleshes out his point, he is speaking of God's righteousness imputed to unrighteous Abraham's account when Abraham believed what God had said. So how can we today participate in this great work of imputation, God putting His righteousness on our account? How do we get there? Verse 7, knowing then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The sons of Abraham are not those who keep the law and thus receive circumcision, for instance. The sons of Abraham are those who trust Jesus for saving grace. Indeed, the story of Abraham anticipated the day when the Gentiles would join the faith ranks of Abraham. Verse 8, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. Where's that coming from? Where's that text? That's Genesis 12 and verse 3. The gospel is in seed form in Genesis 12.3. God will bless the Gentiles through Abraham. Ultimately, that means bless the Gentiles through Jesus Christ and His saving grace. So then, verse 9, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Not by keeping the law, 
We're not going to get out from under the curse of God against our sin by proving that we're not sinners. But, verse 10, moving forward, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, Paul doesn't fill in the blanks here, but the point is you don't keep the law perfectly. Nobody does. No one ever has but Christ. He's quoting here Deuteronomy 27, 26. Here it is again. We looked at it earlier. You've got to keep the whole thing. Those who seek to obtain favor with God by keeping the law must realize that they fail and thus incur the curse of God against them. And that presents a serious, serious problem. Verse 11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. It's somewhat of a confusing phrase, but I think simply put, Abraham's righteous standing before God was gained by trusting God, not by keeping the law, which was not even given to Israel for over 400 years after Abraham believed God. Keeping the law of God is a good and noble thing. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is we violate it and we fall under God's curse. Or as Paul says to the Romans, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But here is the gospel. Christ, verse 13, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Redeemed. Jesus paid the price we could not pay, thereby purchasing our freedom from God's wrath and sin's destruction. He redeemed us, probably referring to Jew and Gentile in the context of Galatians. He redeemed us. He died for us, speaking of his substitutionary atonement. And he was cursed on the tree, a quotation of Deuteronomy 21-23. That is, Jesus died on the cross bearing the full curse of God against our sin. He redeemed us from that curse. A little bit? Partially? Or wholly? The author of Hebrews says every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. For all time, one sacrifice, removing the curse of God in its entirety. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That is, by faith in Jesus' death, we participate in the blessing of God that comes through Abraham. We do not participate in God's blessing by keeping the law, but by trusting in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. So let's think of it. God alone can curse. And Jesus emptied the curse of God against believers. He paid it all. 
Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. None. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing separates us from the blessing of God. We are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith, and the curse is done. It's gone forever for those who believe. Ironically, hear me, ironically, it may well be those who are themselves under the curse of God who are quickest to claim that we are. God's people, who are savingly related to him through Christ, have been set free forever from God's curse. And if you think there's gods out there, or demons out there, or some dualistic evil force out there that places someone under a curse, it's because you've not come to really understand who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. He's the only one that can curse. And he poured it out on the head of his son for those who believe. For those who do not believe, who do not trust in the work that Jesus Christ has done to pay the curse against your sin, a curse remains on your head. You will not enter into eternity and present yourself before God as pure and holy and right and ready to enter into his presence on the merits of your own good deeds. Because over and over and over again, you have violated the law of a holy God who is the judge of the universe. You've got a choice on a human level to live under the weight of your own sin and to enter into eternity and stand before God and seek to justify yourself. Or you can turn from your sin and your own self-righteous ways and embrace the work that Jesus Christ did in your place. There is no other way. He removed that curse. Someone asked me this week, could it be possible that he could forgive me of what I have done? I love questions like that. No sin can separate us from God. No sin that Christ has paid for. He has paid the full penalty. But I think we must take a step further. And if you'll endure with me just a bit longer, 
Believers do remain, number four, subject to the discipline of God until we are glorified. There is what the New Testament refers to as a sin unto death, and there is also a more general fatherly discipline that comes into the life of a believer. Now, in all of this discipline, we are not being punished for our sins so that we will be fitted for heaven, that somehow Christ's atonement covers most of it, but then there's a little bit more to work off as we go through the sufferings of this age. It's not that at all. But it is to say that there is a place a believer can come to where what might be referred to as the sin unto death, as John refers to it in 1 John 5 and verse 16, a sin that leads to death. And I'd like us to turn to 1 Corinthians 11 as an example of such a sin. To be faithful with all of God's word and to be discerning about our own situation, we must come to terms with texts such as this. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 27. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Now the context is the Lord's Supper. The context are people that are publicly showing no discernment or love toward God's people. In contrast to those who have even died by the judgment of God, but, verse 31, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. There is a place a person can get to where God says, the only sanctifying thing that can be done right now is to take this person home. Yet as the book of Job teaches us, it is wrong to interpret a believer's tragic death as a sin unto death unless there is clear evidence to the contrary, such as in 1 Corinthians 11. Now follow me here. We're a sinful church. We deserve every trial God could choose to throw against us. It's all of grace that we have any standing before God. But having said that, there simply is no evidence that Brad Jameson or Eden Baptist Church have been singled out for severe discipline due to rebellious persistence in known sin. We're sinners, but I see no evidence of this in his life or in our life. Now, we must be humble enough to ask God to reveal this to us if it is the case in any way, shape, or form. And I'm praying to that end, particularly concerning this church. We need to always be open to God instructing us otherwise and seeing something that we don't see. I think of Achan's sin in the Jericho AI debacle. Remember, he takes the things that were under the ban at Jericho, and God judges the nation before they know why. But very quickly, it comes to the surface, doesn't it? As to what precisely God was doing. But if specific sin is being punished in our situation, the fact that we don't know this would seem to render the discipline virtually pointless. If we're being disciplined for known sin, then we should know what the sin is. And it should be clear that it's a sin unto death. We have no evidence of that in our church 
in Brad's life, we'll always remain open to what God wants to teach us and point us, but I see nothing that is fruitful along these lines. From all we can detect, we have been called to endure suffering for the edification of our faith and for the glory of God's name, and I think then that Job is our hero, suffering far more than we have. But he was a man of righteous standing whom God chose to deepen in his faith through suffering. It wasn't because of specific sin, as imperfect as Job was, It was because God had higher purposes. Purposes, remember, he doesn't ultimately even answer in the book of Job. But melding off of that point of the sin unto death is this idea of God's fatherly discipline. And let's return to that theme as we have looked at it in the past in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5. Hebrews 12 and verse 5. We have to hear God speaking to us in this. Hebrews 12, 5, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. This is not a sin unto death. This is just the ongoing discipline of the Lord in our lives. It is, verse 7, for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. That should cause us to fear. It would say to me that where God is truly in my life, I can count on discipline. Hard times because he loves me. He loves me enough to teach me faith and trust. Besides this, verse 9, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I don't read that as a suggestion. I read that as a promise. The pain is not pleasant, but will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, you can run away from the training and make a miserable mess of your life, but where God is working in this way and training us, there will be maturity. There will be peaceful fruit of righteousness. So let's think on this. If we can embrace the fact that God has chosen us to walk through a dark valley in order to build our faith, to fit us for heaven, to broadcast the gospel through these tragedies, we should eventually respond with a measure of faith and hope and love and joy that is otherworldly, that is accomplished by the supreme work of God in our hearts and lives in a unique way that accomplishes unique things in our hearts. 
If we embrace that God is always fully engaged in working with infinite wisdom and unmitigated power for our sanctification in all things, then we should eventually come to find amazing peace in our suffering. Someday. Somewhere. And there's perhaps a message for us in a letter that a firefighter called to the scene of Brad's accident wrote to Darcy and the girls. This man explained that when he touched Brad's body to feel for a pulse, that he became aware of nothing around him but an unusual sense of, his words, peacefulness and calm. There was, he said, again I quote him, something different about this call. And I say, yes, there was. And it's my prayer that God in His grace would so do a work in our hearts that there would be something very different about our response to this tragedy. That there would be a peacefulness and a calm that passes understanding. By God's grace, may some who think us cursed realize through our peace and joy and faith that they are under God's curse and that they would seek redemption in Jesus Christ alone. May we open our mouths to proclaim that saving grace and draw them into the family. And may they then join us as those with an eye that's fixed on eternity. May they join us in the confidence of the apostle who wrote to the Corinthian believers, this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, if you believe the Bible, that says to me there's going to be great glory that surpasses beyond comparison, the momentary affliction that we suffer in this life, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I appreciate the words I don't know who first spoke them, but I've heard them many times. That the duty of a pastor is not to teach people how to live. It's to teach people how to die. Because if we learn how to die, we'll know how to live. Death for the believer is ultimately no tragedy. It's just the door into glory. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. May we set our hope on things that are eternal and not allow this world to draw us down and keep us tied here. Let us set our eyes on what is unseen and what will last forever. Let's bow for prayer. Father, I feel in many respects overwhelmed by your word. It is so powerful and deep. 
It is so sufficient for us. But God, we also sense how weak we are. How prone to focus on this life. How prone to pity ourselves. How prone to discouragement. How prone we are to not see your greatness and your glory in its operation. The trials that we face are stiff and they're hard. And Lord, we feel weak in the knees, but I pray that you'd strengthen our limbs and help us to walk faithfully and fruitfully forward. May these great truths hold us up and sustain us. We realize, God, it's not a matter so much of what has happened to us as a matter of how we interpret it. And I pray that we do so biblically and faithfully and honorably and that you would pour out your comfort and your grace upon Darcy and Kirsten and Natalie, upon their extended families. I pray that you'd pour out your grace upon this church, that you'd give us courage and strength and hope and a future eternal focus. God, we are so focused to the things of this life, so focused on them. I pray, God, that as you have gripped our attention once again, that we would take joy in eternity. For anyone who knows you not as Savior today, I pray that you would convict and convince that they are objects of the curse of God. But I pray that you would show them the glory of Jesus Christ who paid the penalty of sin and who lives today as the conqueror of sin and Satan. Bring them to saving faith this day, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.